Okay, well, take your Bibles and please go to 1 Corinthians 14. And now we'll try our best that we can in our limited time together to attempt to untangle uh, what the Bible says and our understanding about what the Bible says of the gifts of prophecy and tongues. And so let me pray and we will dive in. But let's just read verse one to kind of get some bearings. Uh, We'll read verse one and we'll read the last verse. We'll read verses 39 and 40. So verse one, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And skip down to verse 39 and 40. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Let's pray. Holy Father, now would you help us as we look at chapter 14 in the first letter to the Corinthians, would you help us by your spirit now to enjoy these words, to be comforted, to be corrected, and to be emboldened by what our brother, your servant, Paul, has written for us here. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, at the risk of oversimplifying things, there are two kinds of people on the planet. People who like to go camping and people who do not. I do not like to go camping. I am not an outdoorsman. I consider myself a big indoorsman. I'm not a big fan of hiking dangerous paths. I feel like walking barefoot through my kid's Lego-infested room is all the adventure I need. I don't get enthusiastic or pumped about camping. When I hear camping, I hear discomfort, and I don't like it. I bought a house for a reason. But I know Lawson loves camping. Kevin loves camping. The Bowleses, the Flowers, Ed's fist pumping over there. People that love camping love it. They talk about it. And they're comfortable with it. And I'm so glad. And I'm so glad that you can live a fruitful human life with camping being optional. But you can't live a fruitful Christian life with spiritual gifts being optional because they're not optional. Doesn't matter if we're uncomfortable. Doesn't matter if we're enthusiastic about the spiritual gifts or this chapter in particular. Now, we all have different backgrounds and many of us have different thoughts about spiritual gifts, and especially prophecy and tongues. But here's what we can't do. We, we can't avoid this passage. We can't avoid what the Bible teaches about prophecy and tongues because of 2 Timothy 3.16, for every word of God is profitable for us and able to bring us correction, reproof, and training in righteousness. And it's so your discomfort, if you have any discomfort around this passage, that's a good thing because it's the spirit of Christ at work in you to bring you to a place of comfort from his word. And here's what we need to understand about this passage. A lot of the baggage that we may have about thinking about tongues or or prophecy and what they are and what they are not, it's typically because we feel uncomfortable with our history uh, with them. We've seen them abused or we haven't seen them abused. And we think, what are people talking about all these abuses? Or we feel like maybe we've misused them ourselves. I know some of you guys have shared with me. So now that doesn't mean that we can ignore them and deny them today. And I think one of the first things we have to do in a discussion on the gifts of tongues and prophecy is number one, we need to break the divide between the supposed ordinary and extraordinary gifts 
or the natural and the supernatural gifts. You hear people talk like this all the time. Like, well, I don't know, the more supernatural gifts, those aren't here today, but the ordinary gifts, those are here today. We should not have these two categories like that. People will talk as if tongues and prophecy are, are those of the miraculous gifts, as though Christina Guger serving the children right now isn't a miraculous work of the risen Christ. As though someone having the gift of encouragement isn't a work of the Holy Spirit. As though someone preaching or teaching, loving, bearing someone's burdens, as though these also aren't manifestations of the resurrected Lord. The only reason you and I are even here and even care about each other is, isn't because we're good old Southern Americans. It's because we have a resurrected Savior. This is what we must remind ourselves about the spiritual gifts. All of them, they're all supernatural. They're all amazing. And this is why Paul speaks the way he does, because they are elevating prophecy and tongues too high. That's why he wants to ground them in everything that we do should be done in love. I mean, that was the whole thing we've heard throughout 1 Corinthians, week after week after week. And the first section in verses 1 through 25, that's kind of the natural break that the Bible publishers put here. There's six commands or we could say regulations or standards for the church service. Now, right off the bat, look, I mean, you can dive right in. Look at verse 26. So what then, brothers? So now he's really getting to, let's talk about regulations in the service. When you come together and each one has a hymn, so someone wants to sing something, a lesson, someone, someone wants to teach something, a revelation, so a prophecy, something that needs to be shared, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Now, 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only one, let there be only two, or at most three, in each in turn. Let someone interpret. That is showing us already that this is not some willy-nilly, crazy kind of thing occurring. Paul's giving regulations. Two, three, that's it. So this is not just some out-of-control ecstatic experience. It would seem like if, if someone was teaching this today, if Paul showed up at a church today and he was teaching this, people would say, you're limiting the spirit. And Paul said, I'm not trying to limit the spirit. I'm trying to limit this chaos. I'm really trying to limit our flesh of what's occurring here. So we're seeing that all these regulations and standards Paul's putting in, we need to heed. And in verse one, there are two commands. Pursue love. First two words. Love is the common denominator of all that Christians do. And it ought to be, so present among us as Christians when we gather. And the next command is this. We really need to hear this because we would all agree we need to pursue love. Now, what about the next part of the verse? Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Okay, all right, let's do that. Let's earnestly desire them. Especially, oh boy, Paul, what is it? That you may prophesy. And you're like, we were like, whoa, what's going on here? So are, are we doing that? Do you feel yourself trying to, I got to explain this away or I don't feel comfortable with this. Why? Because we've seen prophecy abused. I mean, I remember I had a, I have a friend of mine when he was in high school. He's a very introverted guy and he had a, a, pro, a prophecy guy on tour or whatever at this Christian camp came up to him and said, I'm prophesying over you that you're going to be a Christian comedian. God was like, okay, this is not happening. You know, so what do we do with that? Do we look at it and go, oh my goodness, all this whole prophecy thing, it's all whack. Chunk it all out. Does it seem freaky? And there's some things we have to acknowledge. Listen, some people disobey scripture 
by abusing these gifts, by misusing them and calling things tongues and prophecy that are not tongues and prophecy. They're bogus. That's the one side, and we're generally all familiar with that side. The other side, some people disobey these scriptures by not pursuing or desiring these gifts. I think by the end of tonight, if we don't sit back and go, I should earnestly desire to prophesy in whatever Paul says prophecy is, then I'm not fulfilling the heart and the spirit and obeying of 1 Corinthians 14.1 and 1 Corinthians 14.39 and 40. So some people disobey by abuse and some people disobey by neglect. They're both errors we must avoid. And I think we can land in the middle way by discovering the biblical way these gifts are used. Now, remember, the Corinthian church is misusing them. The Corinthian church is probably what we would see today as the classic uber-charismatic Pentecostal church. Clearly, things are out of order. People are speaking in tongues like crazy. People are prophesying like crazy. They're abusing, I mean, they're abusing all kinds of stuff. And Paul's response is, Paul's response is not, all right, everybody, just shut it down. No more. Cut it out. Turn in all your spiritual gifts. Turn them in. Turn them in. You had your chance. You blew it. He doesn't do that. He says, let's, let's correct this. That's discipleship. And usually our tendencies, because we operate in the flesh a lot, is let's just cut it all out. Just forget it. But instead, because we always swing one way or the other. I mean, imagine if I handed you a bar of gold, just out of my bag. I said, fourth giveaway. I have a gold bullion bar. Would you say, oh, I don't want that. There's fool's gold out there. No, thanks. No way. But no, I've seen bad stuff. I've seen the bad experiences. I, no, I can't risk it. That's a lot of the ways we operate. So whether you grew up Southern Baptist, like I did, Methodist, Anglican, Episcopalian, Lutheran, non-denominational, Sovereign Grace, Bible Church, or this is the first church you've ever really been a part of, what every single one of us must do is commit to two things. One, we must commit to let the Bible inform our view of the spiritual gifts, not my tradition, not my experiences, not my hunches, not my assumptions. We must commit to let the Bible inform our spiritual gifts, our view of the spiritual gifts. We have to leave our Humpty Dumpties behind. Humpty Dumpty is an egg that had a great fall, right? No, the nursery rhyme says nothing about him being an egg, but we all assume he is an egg because some illustrator at some point drew Mr. Dumpty as an egg. We assume that, but he's not. We don't know what he is. When we come to the Bible, as we think about spiritual gifts, we need to let the text speak before we speak. I, listen, I don't care what experience I've had or you have had or haven't had. If it contradicts the Bible, you're wrong. If it contradicts the Bible, I'm wrong. And we'll talk more about that later. The Bible is, what, is our grounding wire. The Bible shapes our thinking. The Bible is greater and more informative and the true north of Christian experience and understanding, not my experiences, not my feelings. They cannot shape my thinking, nor can they shape yours. Secondly, we must commit to pursue love and unity among the body of Christ. If you disagree with me, that's okay but we can't be unloving or disrespectful toward one another or another church. 
So let's say we get some clarity tonight, and we're like, oh, man, awesome, awesome. And you, another friend goes to another church, and you're like, hey, we heard this, this other night, a seminar, and they're like, oh, that's weird. I don't agree with that. Are you some kind of like holy roller now kind of thing, whatever? Don't get defensive. Don't get weird. Don't, don't, don't get all emblazoned. And I love when Barry preached on spiritual gifts a few weeks back. He talked about how they're such an important issue to the life of a local church. But a disagreement over the interpretation of tongues and prophecy of what they are is not an of first importance issue. There is only one of first importance issue in the local church, and it's the gospel of Christ, of his death for our sins and his resurrection. And that's chapter 15. That's what I love about when chapter 14 ends. What are the bookends of chapter 14? Chapter 13, love, and chapter 15, the gospel. This is what frames the discussion of spiritual gifts, our love for one another and that Christ is risen from the dead. This has to be in our minds all the time as we think about these things. And so, well now, why does this matter? It's always a fair question. Anytime anything's brought up. Well, one, God put it in the Bible for us. So we have to believe something about it. Secondly, Jesus has given you gifts. Every Christian in this room is filled with the spirit of the risen Christ and has gifts to benefit his church. One of the ways that Jesus manifests his leadership among us is through the spiritual gifts that he has put in every single one of us. You experience Christ when someone else is using their spiritual gifts to serve you. You experience the reign of Christ when someone uses their spiritual gifts. When when you use your spiritual gifts, gifts of teaching, preaching, serving, administrating, wisdom and encouragement, hospitality, we all function together manifesting the ministry of Christ to one another because none of us has all the gifts. Only Jesus has all the gifts. So when a church, this is why Paul says in Ephesians 4, when we're all growing together into mature manhood, all of us strengthening one another, it's because when we all come together, we all manifest the ministry of Jesus to one another. One guy brings teaching, one gal brings hospitality, one guy brings encouragement, one gal brings administration, all to show what it's like to be ministered to by Jesus himself. And I'll get a phone call from time to time at the church asking if our church is a spirit-filled church. And I always say, absolutely. Our church is made up of men and women who have been born again by the Holy Spirit. They love the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And our desire and their desire is to make much of Jesus in their lives and tomball and beyond. So yes, ma'am, our church is filled with people who have the Holy Spirit. And I say that because every Christian is filled with the spirit of Christ. Every church of the Lord Jesus is a spirit-filled church. But we know that's not what they're asking. (laughs) But I don't care what they're asking. I'm telling them what's true. And usually I'll go, but that's probably not what you're asking, is it? Uh, Well, I said, are you you asking if we speak in tongues in the services, if there's people giving prophecies, if there's tambourines and streamers and all that kind of stuff? Uh, well, yeah, I was kind of saying, no, that, that doesn't really happen here. I haven't seen it yet, um, but we'd love to have you. Uh, we would love for you to come. I think you'd be so blessed if you came to our church and you met the people and you were a part of what Jesus is doing here. I think you'd find that the spirit is alive and active at this place. Um, I don't think they've ever come, but we know, so let's just start getting right into it. We know the gifts of preaching teaching, service, wisdom, these haven't ceased. So have tongues and prophecy. This one is called cessationism. Did it turn off? 
Okay, continuationism and cessationism. Cessationism is the big word that the more, air quotes, miraculous gifts have ceased with the completion of the Bible or with the, la- with the death of the last apostle. And I don't agree with this, and I'll tell you why. But before that, there, let me tell you some of the guys that do believe this, that I love greatly and I'm so grateful for. John MacArthur. Man, what an amazing servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've all benefited from his teaching. Tom Schreiner, one of my professors. Uh, so grateful for him. R.C. Sproul. I mean, these are just some of the most respected teachers and preachers who believe tongues and prophecy have ceased. And I admire all of those men so much. And I, along with the rest of the elders in our church doctrinal statement, differ with them, but respect them highly. And we've had cessationist people preach here. And we will again, because this is not a dividing line of fellowship. It's not a dividing line of ministry. It's not a dividing line over anything. It's just a minor disagreement. Now, cessationists usually appeal to 1 Corinthians 13. So look at chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. In verses 8 through 12, this is all interconnected, especially in Paul's mind, but especially in the discussion of these spiritual gifts. So verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, so what's the then? When the perfect comes, but then face to face. Now, before the perfect comes, I know in part. Then when the perfect comes, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So they appeal, a lot of them will appeal that, Tongues and prophecy have ceased because the perfect has come. And usually two different ways they'll say is the perfect is the completion of the Bible or the end of the apostolic age, the death of the last apostle. Now, here's my first objection to that in verse eight. Has knowledge passed away yet? I don't think so. (laughs) We seem to know stuff about the scriptures and understand them. So if knowledge is still around, then the others must still be around. Prophecy must still be around. Tongues must still be around. And then look at verse 12. The then, but then face to face, now before the perfect comes. And then the then must be when the perfect arrives. And so they'll say it's the Bible, which there's no way you could deduce that from the text. That's not anything you would find in context. And the word that Paul's using, the perfect, is a Greek word that means the design, the end result, meaning the new heavens and the new earth, our final completion of what Jesus is intending, not just the completion of the Bible, not just the end of the apostolic age, but when this new perfect creation arrives, then we'll see face to face. I don't see him face to face right now. It's then when we'll see him face to face. Now we know in part, but then we will know in full. Now we have part knowledge. Then we will have full knowledge. And so if it is 
the perfect is the completion of the Bible, then this is Martin Lloyd-Jones' argument, who is not, he is a very spirit-filled preacher, not like an uber-charismatic guy. He's an old English uh, preacher called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And his argument is for this section, if the perfect has come and these things have ceased, then what also must be true is that we see face-to-face, that you and I no longer know in part, that you and I now know in full, and that you and I now know more than the Apostle Paul. I am very uncomfortable saying I know more than the Apostle Paul. So the arrival has not arrived. We know in part still. We still see through the mirror dimly. Here's why I think they have not passed because the perfect has not arrived. It's not the completion of the Bible. It's not the death of the apostles, but the telos, the design, the end, the arc of what is to come. So they're still operational. If the perfect hasn't come, this all really hinges on 13. If that hasn't happened yet, then they're still operational. And the Lord unleashes them as he sees fit. And usually now what people will say is, well, yep, uh, yeah, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm okay with them still being around. But they'll say things like this. But they only occur on the mission field or places that are new to the gospel. And I'm sympathetic to that, but I'm uncomfortable with that. I'm uncomfortable with an explanatory geographical pigeonholing of the Holy Spirit's actions. Because that goes against the very spirit of 1 Corinthians 14. These things are not happening on the mission field. They're happening inside of a local church. So they're happening in a place where the gospel's been for maybe a decade now, maybe a little longer. So this is not a new frontier area. This is happening in the local church among believers, not engaging in mission, but in their ministry to one another. That's why Paul's whole thing is about building each other up, building each other up, building each other up. So that thing that goes against the whole spirit of how the gifts are spoken of in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 14. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone has these two gifts or even that every church has these gifts. I don't think I've seen these gifts operational at our church in a lot of churches, but I have seen them in some, have friends that have seen them in theirs. That's all up to Jesus. And that position is called the continuationism. They're still continuing. Guys that fall into this camp would be guys like John Piper, Wayne Grudem, uh, Sam Storms, Matt Chandler, which would be a few names of men that you might know that hold this position. So since the perfect hasn't touched down yet, Paul's words to the Corinthians still apply streamlined to us. So listen to verse one again. If the perfect hasn't come yet, now how does verse one take on a new light? Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So do you desire the spiritual gifts now? Not for your own enjoyment or because you've always wanted to have a certain gift, like, oh man, I'd love, I'd love to prophesy, that'd be so cool. That, that's not the heart of the spiritual gifts, but to build others up. I mean, look at verse three. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So the tone of prophecy isn't just telling the future. We're gonna talk more about that in a second. It's not just future telling, but upbuilding, encouragement, consolation. Verse four, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. I think he's talking about the, the, the uninterpreted tongue. You just builds up yourself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Verse five, so that the church may be built up. Verse six, 
Paul says, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. 26, verse 26. What then, brothers? Last, last sentence. Let all things be done for building up. In verse 31. If a revelation is made to an, I'm sorry, 31. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. So you can see the tone of these gifts. Isn't anything controversial, anything weird? Paul's whole aim for these things, his goal, his telos for these things is encouragement, upbuilding, consolation, ministering to one another. So you see Paul's emphasis around tongues and prophecy. The biblical function of prophecy isn't to scare people isn't to give people the heebie-jeebies, but to build up the church. The counterfeit gift divides and tears down. And that's an abuse and it injures the church. The real gift builds up. Now, what is prophecy today? Now, also, I will answer questions at the end. So write them down, whatever. We're not gonna do the text in and just ask them, just out loud, and I'll try to repeat it in the mic so the people who are listening later uh, can hear it. So what is prophecy today? What is New Testament prophecy? First, we need to chunk the idea that prophecy is always and only telling the future. That, that, that is a too narrow scope of what prophecy is. It's a lot more than just future telling. And even the Old Testament prophets, they did more than just telling the future. They would bring a word of rebuke. They would bring a word of hope. They would bring a word of encouragement. I mean, Zephaniah, who told the people of Israel, the Lord rejoices over his people with singing. Not future, not correction and rebuke, but also one of hope. Very full scope of what prophecy would bring. Isaiah certainly foretold future events about invasions, about wars, about the virgin birth, about Jesus being the suffering servant. And he also gave a message of hope. Isaiah 1, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins may be red as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So the prophecy is more than just this kind of red-eyed, terminator, fortune-telling kind of message of wrath. New Testament prophecy has some of the same elements. We see guys telling the future. We see guys bringing a word of hope and encouragement. I love what Sam Storm says. You can read this long, long quote on the screen with me. Sam writes that a band of prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them, Agabus, stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world, Acts eleven twenty eight, Prophets were active in the church of Antioch, Tyre, Caesarea, where the four daughters of Philip prophesied. Prophecy was one of the gifts of the spirit designed for edifying the body of Christ who was also utilized in the churches at Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, and Thessalonica. So we see that future is being told in New Testament prophecy, words of encouragement, words of rebuke. And even, this is wild to me this week, even the giving of a spiritual gift is imparted through a prophecy. 1 Timothy 4, 14, Paul tells Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So what is it then in the church today? I think it certainly could be telling the future. That could occur. 
time will tell if someone were to say something. Like someone could say, someone stands up now, I have a prophecy of the future. All right, let's hear it. Okay, we'll see. No, you're wrong. I mean, that's it. You're done. And we'll talk more about like, shouldn't we stone that person then? That's what they did in the Old Testament. We'll talk about how that's different today and, and why that's, that's not the case anymore. Wayne Grudem, he defines, you have it in the article, you'll see it and you can read that later. He defines New Testament prophecy today as telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Teaching is rooted, this is why prophecy is not like, oh, I just view it as preaching. Paul views it as different. You can see that in verse 26 again. Look at the categories of things he lists out occurring in their worship services. A hymn, a lesson, that's the teaching. A revelation, that's the prophecy. So Paul says, Paul views these as two separate items. A a revelation may happen in the teaching, but in and of itself is not the teaching. And we'll even see later that Paul views the Bible preaching as even more authoritative than prophecy. and, and, And we'll see why why it's not authoritative as scripture. Now, two objections to New Testament prophecy still being around today and there being a need for prophecy. Why would we need it? Here's objection one. If there is prophecy today, are you saying we need to add them to the Bible? Who's heard that or or thinks that? Uh, Why would we need, so you want to add to scripture? Revelation says you add, you're cursed. Not at all, it's not what I'm saying. And I get the heart of that objection. That's a good objection. It's noble. It's with the spirit of the scriptures. The Bible is sufficient. I agree. The Bible is sufficient. We cannot add to the Bible. And I think that objection is easily answered. Just think in terms of 1 Corinthians 14. Are people prophesying in Corinth? Yes or no? Yes. Are there prophecies in the Bible? Yes or no? No. Their, their Their prophecies in Corinth are not added to the scriptures. Yeah, their, their prophecies, the, the Corinthians prophecies. Yeah, their, T-H-E-I-R, their, their prophecies. Negatory, correct. Uh, we have, do we have all of Jesus's prophecies? I mean, John says, Jesus, all the things he said and did could fill up the world with books. We have more of Paul's prophecies. Philip's daughters that are prophesying. We don't have them included in the scriptures. So that debunks the notion that, well, if there's prophecy, then it must be added to the scriptures. It's wrong. Because even the scriptures testify that there are prophecies not added to the scriptures. So second objection, if the Bible is sufficient and the Bible's enough, why would I need a prophecy? That's a good one too. It's a great question. It's the same heart as the previous objection. And this one too is easily answered and I'll answer it with a question. So yes, the Bible is all sufficient, but what if your all sufficient Bible told you not to despise prophecies? What if your all sufficient Bible told you not to forbid speaking in tongues? And what if your all-sufficient Bible told you that some Christians need them? You see, I feel like Morpheus. What if I told you that the existence of prophecy in the world today isn't to treat the sufficiency of Scripture as belittled. It's actually a reinforcement of it. Because our all-sufficient Scripture says, don't despise prophecy. Don't forbid speaking in tongues. So it's not a retreat from the sufficiency of scripture. It's actually a reinforcement of it. Because if we're not careful, we could take the sufficiency of scripture argument and apply it to all of life. Because the, the sufficiency of scripture isn't a bottleneck for the Christian life. Well, the, since the Bible's enough, I don't need to be a part of a church. 
People say that all the time. And they're disobeying their all-sufficient scripture. Well, since the Bible's enough, I don't need to listen to sermons. God's given pastors, teachers. Well, the Bible's enough. I don't need to read books. I don't need to pray. See, you see how the sufficiency of scripture is, is not a trump for all of these other things. It's meant to be a reinforcement of all of these things. And look at verses three through four. Prophecy can build up the whole church. This is, this is Paul's plan for it. This is the way God has designed it. The one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Tongues builds up himself, but prophecy builds up the whole church. And now look at verse five. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. Can you imagine pastors saying that today? I should be able to say that to you. If the perfect hasn't come, I should be able to say without fear, without any worries, I desire you to speak in tongues. Even more, verse five, even more to prophesy. Why? Because the one who prophesies, he has more benefit to the whole church. Unless someone interprets, the church isn't built up by the tongue speaker, but the whole church is built up by the prophecy because they can understand it. And if biblical prophecy isn't just fortune telling and is a word of encouragement, a word of consolation, a word for upbuilding, what church wouldn't want that? Why wouldn't we want that? We don't want it because maybe we're afraid of what it is because we're spooked out, because we get the heebie-jeebies, but we shouldn't. If someone gives a prophecy today, here's what we need to understand about prophecy today. It's not unchallengeable. If someone were to stand up on a Sunday and this like were to happen, I have a a prophecy I want to share, I think uh, X, Y, Z thing. That's not unchallengeable. We don't receive it as though it is the very word of God. Prophecy today is not on par with scripture. It's not on par with God's voice. This is huge for us to grasp because if we don't grasp this point, then it all gets really weird really quick. And this is what you see a lot in the prosperity movement, a lot of what you see in super charismatic churches where people can say anything they want that contradicts scripture and no one says anything. That's not healthy. That's not biblical. Grudem says, there are many indications in the New Testament where when this gift occurs of prophecy, that it has less authority than the scriptures. And it's even not as authoritative as Bible preaching in the early church. That's a big perspective. This is how we should view it. God's word, the preaching and teaching of God's word, and then a prophecy. But today it's like prophecies on top, the preaching and teaching, and then God's word. It's been flipped upside down. That is not biblical. That is not healthy. We can mistakenly think of prophecy as some kind of CB radio from God. Someone opens their mouth and thus saith the Lord. No one today should say thus saith the Lord. And that's how Paul teaches it in 1 Corinthians 14. Because look at verse 29. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. He's giving regulations, standards, codes of conduct for prophecy in the local church. Let two or three speak. What does this show us? I think it shows us a lot. First, if prophecy were to occur in a church, Paul says it's not to be some kind of wild showcase. 
and people gunning to speak, people going crazy. Paul says, eh, only, only two or three is enough. You're limiting the spirit. No, I'm operating in the spirit. Two or three, that's enough. That gives a way different flavor than how we see prophecy function today. And another note, people view it as something, I've got to say this. Paul says, no, you don't. You can wait. But I'm the fourth one. Eh, three's good. And he's just kind of like, eh, two, two or three. I mean, two, fine, three, sure. Five, not too much. Because that's not to be the main focus of the service. That's way different than I've got. I'm just itching to say this is the God just, I have to say it now. I, I got to cut you off. No, Paul says, no way. It can wait. Rest. Let the rest listen. Share it next week. Secondly, here's another thing we should notice. Okay, so only two or three speak, 29. And let the others weigh what is said. So secondly, prophecy is to be evaluated. Weigh what is said. Weigh it against scripture. See if it's contradictory. See if it rings true. Paul says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians. Look on the screen, 1 Thessalonians 5. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So here we're told, do not despise them. Do not, do not be suspect to them. Don't be suspicious of them. Don't be cynical of them. Don't roll your eyes. Don't yeah, yeah them. Test them. Engage it. Assess it. Weigh it. Keep the good. Don't give it a second thought if it doesn't line up. This is why we're saying that if a New Testament prophecy today is not on par with Scripture, because you can't do that with Scripture. Even though many of us do, you're not supposed to do this with Scripture. Weigh what you like. I don't know. Someone gives a prophecy, doesn't like with Scripture? No thanks. And Paul is saying this, guys, that's like it, don't despise prophecies, because there are probably a lot of prophecies occurring that have a lot of bad in them, that don't line up. Way the scholars speak of this is like when a prophecy, it's something that God's bringing to mind, and then it gets mixed in with our human frailties and failures, and it's delivered. Nah, I didn't hit it all the way. I messed it up. Oh well. Hold fast to the good part. Hold fast to what is good. This happens in the first century, it can happen today. Someone thinks they have a prophetic word, doesn't line up, they don't don't hold fast to it. Doesn't have authority over you, doesn't trump the word of God. And it probably happened a lot. That's why Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians and in 1 Corinthians. And this is probably the word we need to hear most today. Don't let the past help you despise the gift of prophecy. Don't despise them. This is another command from Christ. Don't quench the spirit. These verses, 1 Thessalonians 5 and 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 14, 29, this shows us how New Testament prophecy is different from Old Testament prophecy, that they're not on par with God's voice. You can't evaluate Isaiah and Jeremiah the way you would evaluate a Corinthian prophet. See whether you agree with it or not. Because they have the authority to say, thus says the Lord, it's God's voice. Prophets today, they are not God's voice. But who are the people in the New Testament who speak with God's authority? The apostles. The apostles are the parallel office and image of the prophets in the Old Testament. They're the ones who speak to the people of God. They have been commissioned by God, by Jesus himself, and they speak with that same authority. Peter recognizes this. Paul writes scripture. Peter recognizes. 
And look at verse 37 of chapter 14. This, when I read this today, I thought, whoa, what a verse. Verse 37. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Whoa. I mean, they should acknowledge the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul knows what he's doing. Paul knows his office. He knows his authority and he knows whose master he belongs to. Verse 38, if anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. I mean, he's getting right up, bucking up against the people who are opposing him. You don't recognize what I'm saying? We don't recognize you. They should see that what I am doing is a command of the Lord. Prophets don't have this authority. Only apostles do. So are there apostles today? There's church signs that say there are apostles. There are not apostles today. Acts 1 gives the guidelines for apostles. They have to have seen the risen Lord Jesus themselves. This is why Paul qualifies, because Jesus met him on the road, and he saw the Lord Jesus himself. Now turn to Acts 21. You can see in Acts 21, all that we've been talking about so far, all this kind of comes to an example in Acts chapter 21. In Acts 21, look at verse 4. Paul's headed to Jerusalem, and all these examples of how his New Testament prophecy differ It can be wrong. It doesn't have the same authoritative voice. Uh, Sometimes it can be fortune-telling, future-telling. What what is it? Verse four. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But Paul's going to go to Jerusalem because Paul doesn't view their prophecy as on par with God's word. He disobeys what they're telling him through the spirit, through this revelatory word. Paul doesn't view their prophecy on par with God's voice because he wouldn't disobey God's voice. And you see it more clearly in verse 10. While they were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus gives a prophecy. The Jews are going to arrest Paul and give him to the Gentiles. And now look at verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul, don't go. You've had two groups of people now tell you through the Holy Spirit, what's going to happen to you? The prophecy has come. Do not go. Do not do it. 13, Paul said, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Now skip down to verse 33. Agabus was half right. Verse 33. Riots breaking out in the temple. 33. Then the tribune came up and arrested him. This is a Roman tribune. 
arrested him, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. So who arrested Paul? Romans. Who did Agabus say was going to arrest Paul? Jews. So here we have a prophet in the New Testament giving a prophecy where he messed up on a couple of the details. And what we see in second opinions is him being stoned. No. They recognize, nah, he got a few of the details wrong, but he pretty much nailed it. And he, he's not delivered over to the Romans. The Romans arrest him. The Romans don't, the Gentiles don't try to kill him. The Jews try to kill him. So he's got the gist right, but he not 100% on the details. So here we see a real kind of nature, a summation of all what we've been saying of it in the scriptures, of a prophecy occurring, a spontaneous word brought to mind from God, but it can be mixed in with our own thoughts and our ideas, and we misunderstand it, we mess it up, just like every other gift. Have I ever messed up the gift of teaching? Yes. Have you ever messed up the gift of hospitality? Yes. The gift of encouragement? Yes. The gift of New Testament prophecy today is not being a mouthpiece, a megaphone for God himself. Just like every other gift today is not the exact divinity of God at work among us as though we are kind of these little displays and same powers that when I'm serving, it's the same authority as God himself. Prophecy today should not be considered as the very words of God because Paul didn't treat it like that. Now, why is teaching from the Bible seen as more authoritative? This is a tricky one. This one's controversial too. Prophecy is not as authoritative as Bible teaching because do we see women prophesying in Scripture? Yes. In Acts 21, here, verse 9, talking about Philip, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Paul does not chime in and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Women don't do this. And even in Acts, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about women who are prophesying with their head uncovered. He says, you need to have your head covered, not stop prophesying. So Paul doesn't forbid women from prophesying in the church, but he, he forbids them from preaching and teaching. 1 Corinthians 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. So women can prophesy, but they cannot preach or teach or have authority over men. So this shows us that Bible, Bible preaching is way more authoritative. Bible teaching is way more authoritative than prophecy. Prophecy is not on the same level as the exposition and teaching of God's word. And that's why here in 1 Corinthians 14, he doesn't prohibit, uh, prohibit women from prophesying. Look at it again. But he does prohibit them from engaging in a certain aspect of the prophecy and of the interpretation of tongues. And what is that? It sounds really uncomfortable at first when we read it, just kind of like everything else we've been talking about. But look at verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. We'll talk more about that in a second. As in all the churches of the saints. This is a rule that he says, this is not just a rule in Corinth. This would be a rule everywhere in every church. What is that further rule? 34. The women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything that I desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home 
for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. That sounds very harsh on the front level. But when you pair it up with 1 with Timothy 2.12, where he says, I don't permit them to teach or to preach or to have authority over men, because well, he doesn't prohibit them from prophesying. What he's saying is they should be silent, I think, in the interpretation of the tongues and the weighing of prophecies, since that would be an authoritative moment. And the Corinthian women, who we know have issues because of the head coverings in chapter 11, they're probably causing a scene and challenging their husbands, probably disagreeing with their husband's interpretation or an interpretation is made of a tongue or a prophecy is given. And instead they're going, I don't agree with that. I think you're wrong because of this, this, this. And their husband's probably going, oh no. That's why he says, if you got something to ask, ask, ask him at home. Just wait. I mean, we get that here today. If we were doing a Q&A, which we're gonna do later, and there was a lady who kept asking questions and they're embarrassing and she just kept going on and on. Paul would go, ask your husband, just wait. Wait till you get in the car, ask him. Or ask, you know, you could ask the pastor later. Don't, just stop. You could see how Paul's kind of nature, what's happening here. I think it is, he's telling them, you have questions about the interpretation the, uh, of the tongue or the prophecy, weighing it. They're not to take on that authoritative role. Paul's conclusion of prophecy, verse 39. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. That links it up with verse one. Why? We read those two at the beginning. Verse one, pursue love. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. In verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. So it's not raving. It's not disrespectful, but in a manner worthy of Christ because Jesus gives spiritual gifts for the encouragement and maturing of his body. And these gifts are done under the lordship of Christ. I'll give you two quick examples of maybe what prophecy looks like today. First example is from Piper. Piper is talking about in a sermon, he gives this example where he's just preaching and he's teaching and he says, then maybe God is leading you to start a Bible study on the 34th floor of the IDS Tower. Or maybe God's leading you, and he's just saying stuff like that. After the service, a lady visiting the church walked up to him and said, why did you say that? Say what? The thing about the 34th floor in the IDS Tower, the Bible study. He's like, oh, I don't know. It wasn't in my notes. I just kind of said it. She said, well, I work on the 34th floor of the IDS Tower. And I've been thinking about starting a Bible study for coworkers there. What should I do? And Piper's like, I think you got your answer. <laughs> I, I think God graciously showed you what you should do. And he was like, what is that? He goes, I think it's prophecy. That's something spontaneously brought to mind. I didn't know and said it and it was for her. And now, and it, but then I hear that and go, but did it build up the whole church? But it built her up. So maybe it was in the setting and then now other people built up and they hear the story. So maybe that, kind of, I don't know. And he was very like, maybe that is, I don't know. I see how it could fit. And I've heard stories where I've said something not in my notes or it was in my notes and families tell me later, they both got in their car and cried and said, did you hear what he said? We got to do this. I'm like, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't know you were thinking about that or have any clue. I just said something. And Piper, an example in a sermon, he says, what, what would be the gift of prophecy today? He says, for example, 
It would be an exercise of the gift of prophecy if someone in a small group or prayer meeting was led by God to say, I feel that our sister church in Shanghai is spiritually struggling and undergoing attack. Let's pray. And the next day, an email comes confirming that was the case. And the prayers of the people were answered. I think that's an example of prophesying. God spontaneously, you have to, I think we should, we, we should pray for our sister church in Shanghai. Nothing weird. Upbuilding, not only it's upbuilding for that church, but also upbuilding for the church in Shanghai. It's not against scripture. It's totally good in accordance with scripture and confirmed. Whoa, that's supernatural. And Spurgeon, I think he was a cessationist. He, he, would, he wouldn't speak in these terms kind of like, like we do today. But there's a story in one of his sermons while he's preaching in London that he points to a young man while he's preaching and says, young man, the gloves in your pocket are unpaid for. And it turns out the kid had stolen some gloves. Spurgeon didn't know the guy. And the guy comes to Christ. There's another story, another occasion. There's a man, he's, he looks out, he says, there's a man sitting here who is a shoemaker. He keeps his shop open on Sundays. It was open last Sabbath morning. He took nine pence and there was four pence profit on it. His soul was sold to Satan for four pence. These are really minute details. A church of 20,000 something people, there's a shoemaker here who has his shop open on Sundays. It was open on the Sabbath. He stole money from the drawer. He stored not only four pence, and the guy was there, came up afterwards. How did you know? And Spurgeon led him to Christ. I don't know what you do with those things. And these aren't like, oh, I heard on TBN kind of stories. This is John Piper and, and Charles Spurgeon stories. So, so now after all that, that's all fun and dandy, all that teaching we did. But now how do we obey verse one and verse 40? How do I earnestly desire these gifts? And that's really of utmost importance. If you're not convinced or, or if you are going, hmm, okay, I could see how given these qualifications, these regulations, these standards, not the just willy-nilly, you know, kind of exercise of these things. So how do I earnestly desire them? I think first, pray for it. Legitimately pray for it. Lord, would you give me a word of upbuilding for a brother or sister in Christ? And I've tried to follow Piper's example when he says, when he gets up to preach, when he was a pastor on preaching every Sundays, he would say, Lord, would you give me a word of prophecy today? And so when I have the mental awareness of that, I'll pray, Lord, would you, would you give me a word of prophecy today for the people? I think we could broaden that. Lord, would you give me a word of, the way Paul describes it in verse three, a word of upbuilding, a word of encouragement, and a word of consolation. You know, if calling it prophecy freaks you out, fine, don't call it prophecy. Call it a word of upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. That will honor the Lord as well. And secondly, just desire it. <laughs> Desiring here is in of itself a command. So you don't desire it, be like, Lord, I'm freaked out. Would you help me? Would you, would you grow me into desiring the proper biblical standard of these gifts here? Not what I've seen on TV, not what I've experienced in the past, but what I see here. So do you? And will you? Not for your own purpose, but for what? To build others up. That, that's the whole point. And before we can desire it, we have to stop despising it. So that might be the first step for some of us is I've been despising the gifts. I've been cynical. I've been suspicious. And maybe in a way I'm quenching the spirit. 
And it's clear that if you open up your faith to that, open up your mind, open up your heart, open up your hands to that, it doesn't lead you down a path of craziness, a path of dog barking and flopping on the ground like a fish on a dock. That's not the path it leads you to. It leads you to order. It leads you to encouragement, consolation, upbuilding. It leads you to two or three at most. And desiring to build one another up and see what the Lord does. All right, that was a lot. Very quick. We're going to take a quick break, five minutes, stretch your legs, whatever you need to do, get get a cup, cup of coffee, some water, and we'll come right back. And now I'll try to tackle the gifts of tongues. I think tongues is a lot easier to talk about than prophecy. Because I knew if I said on a Sunday morning, I believe prophecy still exists today. It'd be like, people would pass out, you know, all that kind of stuff. But hopefully now you're not as spooked out. So five minutes, we'll, we'll come back and write down your questions or whatever. If, if you're bold enough to ask them, I'd love to answer them. Now let's get started talking about the gift of tongues. And I, I do hope that if you have any questions, I'm really going to try to do my best to, to answer them um, all. And I'm sure there'll probably be some questions where I'll, my answer will be, I don't know. Um, I, I think sometimes we're much better theologians when we just don't try to force everything. We just go, I, I don't know. I don't know how that works out. That's a great question. And I'm not smart enough to answer it. I'm sure that's going to happen. Um, some tongues. And I'll confess to you, I speak in tongues every single day. It's English is the main one. In Acts 2, we do see that tongues is a known human language because Acts 2 says that everyone is understanding in their own language. And I think that's the case throughout the entire book of Acts. <clears throat> the way Luke is writing, we're supposed because remember, this is one giant account in Luke, and so we're supposed to remember, okay, well, someone's speaking tongues. Okay, what we heard in Acts chapter 2. And the same way that sermons get shorter and shorter throughout Acts, they're the content of them, not because the sermons are actually shorter, but Luke is summarizing for us. Remember what, just remember what he said before. Remember what he said before. So what about 1 Corinthians 14? Is it different from Acts 2? Well, we should be clear that same thing. If the perfect has not come yet, then tongues have not passed. Tongues have not ceased. Paul is not anti-tongues speaking. Look at verse 39. So my brothers are earnestly desired to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Why would he say that? These people are speaking in tongues. Why would he say, do not forbid it? Because there, there's the temptation to, this is too much. This is getting out of control. This is too weird. Let's cut it out. Let's remove it. We're just done. He says, no, 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 don't do that. So since the perfect has not arrived, prophecy in tongues are still available today. What was the abuse in Corinth? Probably along the same lines as the abuse of prophecy. Too many people speaking in tongues and then them not being interpreted. That's the key. There is no wiggle room here that must be interpreted if it's in public. Look at verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or two or at most three. He's really pushing here. Prophecy, eh, two to three. This one, at most three. No more. Done. And each in turn. And let someone interpret. Paul seems to be, he's really quenching the spirit here. He's adding all kinds of regulations, all kinds of stipulations, because he knows 
that this needs to be done in an orderly way. It is the only way God will be glorified is if this is done in order. Just like prophecy, only a few. And it should be one at a time. So the stuff that's whole crowds, everyone saying stuff in tongues, Paul would say, "Mm -mm -mm." that's not in accordance with the way God wants us to do it. Too many people and it not being interpreted, Paul would say, no, that's not helpful. That's not building up the church. That's not what God would want us to do. What if there's not an interpreter? Verse 28, if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. If there's no interpreter, no tongues. Paul says, keep silent. In the same way, this really changes the way we normally have seen tongues. It's not a dozen people or a group of people speaking in tongues. Paul says two or three. And this is not some out of control, ecstatic, electric boogaloo kind of thing going on. This is why we see tongues. It's like people are possessed and I've just got a message and I got to share it. Paul says, no. Because if no interpreter, you can hold it. But, 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 mm-mm. you can wait. This is like, and now the practical question comes up. Well, how do you know if there's an interpreter or not? But if you're getting revved up and be like, oh, there's no interpreter. And what do you do? I think it's clear to them that they know these are the people who have the gifts of interpretation. Is that person here? No, okay, I'm like, sure. And it also gives the awareness that people who are going to speak in tongues in Corinth, they know they're going to speak in tongues. It's not like they got zapped and it just came out. They know they're going to speak in tongues. Paul says, wait your turn. This is way different than what we see. Wait, I've never seen this. But Paul says it can be done and it can only be done this way if it's going to honor Christ. Their eyes are getting rolled back in their head and all that kind of weird stuff. Paul's concern with the gift of tongues is that if they aren't interpreted, they don't benefit anyone but the speaker. And that has no place in the gathering of the local church. That's his whole beef. Look at verse six. Now, brothers, if I came to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? That's his whole desire. I want to benefit them. I want to benefit them. Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. Verse seven, if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? He talks about the bugle. So verse nine, so with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? But you're speaking into the air. It's pointless. Paul says it must be interpreted. So either it's a known human language being interpreted. And some people think, I have, I have no way to know. I don't, I don't know enough about this. I don't have enough insight. I've read a lot of commentaries that all say different things. That maybe it is some kind of ecstatic speech that has a system of understanding that the person with the gift of interpretation can understand and that they're able to know, this is just, we don't have enough information. It seems more likely that it's a known human language, but Paul says it could also be interpreted. So if there's no one there to interpret, it's wrong because it is to be weighed. It's not on par with scripture. And look at what he says in verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Who's ever seen that? The tongue speaker should pray, I hope I can interpret this myself. 
Now, all of us who are very cynical and suspicious will go, well, that doesn't seem fair. That seems odd. Someone could, he could pull a fast one on somebody. We all go there immediately. That's not right. Because he could just, you know, jibber, jabber, jabber, shit about a Honda and just say something. And just say, uh, Jeff, I interpret that you need to do a new sermon series on the rapture. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> I'm not bound to that. It's not in scripture. So here's the deal. When it comes to tongues, Paul is only forbidding uninterpreted public tongues. When it comes to tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is only forbidding uninterpreted public tongues. Private is fine. And that really frustrated the old school Southern Baptist in me. Private is fine. Someone praying in tongues is okay. Paul has no issue with that. You can see it in the text. They pray to God. And that's what he says. If, you, if there's not an interpreter, what does he say? Keep silent in church. Keep silent in the gathering, verse 28. Speak to himself and to God. So no interpreter, fine. Just between you and the Lord now. But they should also know what they're saying. It's not helpful to them if they don't know what they're saying. Because look at verse 14. If I pray in the tongue, my spirit prays. So Paul says, I've prayed in tongues. And that frustrated me too. Because I think of Paul as Mr. Doctrine of Election, Mr. Doctrine of Justification, Mr. Theologian. And now I have this picture of him praying in tongues in his prayer closet. Woo, I didn't like that. Because Paul isn't given in to our traditions into the ways that we think of things. Paul's just being biblical, and he has this gift, and he does it. Verse 15. So what am I to do if my mind's unfruitful? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, and I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, so he's talking about praying in tongues, how can anyone in a position of an outsider say amen? How can they agree to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you are saying? This is why they have to be interpreted. People can't be built up. People can't agree. And I've had that happen to me. I've had people say prophecies over me and they came true. And one of them was that I would become the pastor of Redeemer. I don't know what to do. Uh, I just had, well, here we are. <laughs> I had a person pray in tongues over me, uninterpreted. And I can't, I, I feel this verse. I can't say amen with it. So I have no idea what you're saying. I'm grateful for your display of love, but I can't agree with it because I don't know what's going on. So I just kind of stand there and, amen. <laughs> and not amen as I agree, but we're done. I, you know, the end, conclusion. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I, I can't agree. This is the spirit of that verse. Verse 17, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Hopefully you're seeing the refrain throughout the passage. It is all about the other person. It's all about the church being built up, not, not about you. 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Man, Paul's charismatic. Biblical charismatic. We're all charismatic, biblically. We all have the spirit. So Paul clearly spoke in tongues too. Biblically, 
Yes, they can be abused, just like they're being abused in Corinth. And yes, we know people that have abused them. Yes, we know of churches that have abused them. But that doesn't mean we should write them off. Like the first resolve, we must commit to love one another and other churches. Because did Paul write the Corinthians off? Oh, they're so crazy in these gifts. I'm done with them. I'm focusing on Ephesus now. They got the good doctrine. No, he, he still loves them and engaged them. So he taught them biblically. And we should teach and encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ where we have that relationship where we can and teach them, hey, here's what this passage really says. I'm not telling you to chunk it out the window, but here's what Paul's teaching. I think you should listen to this. This doesn't give us license to go, all right, we're gonna go knocking down on all the Pentecostal churches. Hey, I got a word for you. I got a prophecy for you. You know, you know we're, we're, not, we're not called to do all that. But with the relationships that we have, the friends that we have, the family that we love, and we have that relationship, we should be able to do that in a spirit of love and respect and kindness and graciousness for let all that you do be done in love. That's the beginning. Remember, don't forget the first two words of all chapter 14, pursue love. And to Paul, teaching is more important to him than tongues in the public gathering. Look at verse 19. Nevertheless, so he says in 18, I thank God that I speak in a lot of tongues. Verse 19, however, nevertheless, in church, you know when people say like, we don't go to church. Paul says, I go to church. (laughs) Verse 19, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others. So I'd rather teach than 10,000 words in a tongue. So to Paul, teaching is more important than tongues. And this is the imbalance we see in very charismatic churches and charismatic friends. They value the, the tongues and the prophecy more than the teaching. What does Paul value more? He values the teaching more than the tongues and the prophecy. And if we can get these balances right, we might just see revival. We might just see the spirit move at work. So verse one again, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Does it weird you out to desire it? Is it would it weird you out if one of your pastors said, now verse five, I want you all to speak in tongues. I mean, I don't even feel like I can say that. But if I believe the perfect hasn't come, then there should be no fear going, man, I desire you guys to speak in tongues. And I've spoken with people at Redeemer who said, you know, when I was first a Christian, um, the church we were a part of, they did it. Yeah, they had the weird stuff happening in the service and I, I never did it there. But in the privacy of my home, I did pray in tongues and it was so encouraging to me and so refreshing. And I just, I don't know, I don't do it anymore. And I'm like, dude, I've never done it. But I don't think anything's keeping you from doing it. You ain't doing it here unless you get somebody to interpret it. But in your home, man, hallelujah. I've prayed for the gift of tongues, not for the prayer side or the public gathering side, but for evangelism. Down in Houston, trying to evangelize this guy, him and I clearly could not speak to one another. In Acts 2, it's used for evangelism, it's used for mission. Like, Lord, would you give me the gift of tongues so I can just speak to this guy, please? And so I just start speaking. He's looking at me like, like nope, don't have it. And I have friends who grew up Amish. I mean, so this is not like, oh, they grew up really dabbling in this stuff. Amish, on a mission trip, you know, became an evangelical, just like us, um, became uh, excited about missions, goes on missions, 
has an interpreter, speaks, and is wait, waiting for the interpreter to translate. Like, are you going to? Interpreter goes, you, you spoke in perfect, I think, Swahili. You, you did it. She's like, what? I don't know Swahili. She's like, you did. It just happened that one time. She's like, it came and gone, never happened again. And so I hear that. I'm like, I totally believe you because you were Amish. And like, <laughs> you don't, you, this, isn't like, this isn't in your bag of tricks, you know? Like, you don't have the bent to just kind of like be all like goofy Pentecostal. I think if we're obeying the regulations and guidelines, and I'm using those words because that's what they are. They are restrictions. They are commands. They're regulations and guidelines of chapter 14. We aren't quenching the spirit at all. We're walking in the spirit. We're walking in accordance with God's word, wanting to build each other up. Last verse for the night, 1 Peter 4. And this is a great passage to end on. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another. Man, it just sounds like 1 Corinthians 14 again, doesn't it? Loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order, here's why it all matters, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's why 14 matters. That we may use whatever gifts we have to serve one another and to glorify King Jesus, who's worthy of it forever and ever. Amen.